0: If you have a Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5, there are notes in the back if you need those, Ecclesiastes 5, just a couple preliminary comments about Ecclesiastes, it's been a couple of weeks since we've dug into this particular book, Uh, We had a weather week, and then we had a missionary week, and so we're back on track tonight with Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, A lot of the sermons on Ecclesiastes up to this point have been longer than we normally try to go on a Sunday morning or even on a Wednesday night. And that's because, in part, the kind of writing that Ecclesiastes is. It is reflective wisdom. And the meaning and the point and the takeaway and the application is not always immediately obvious. And sometimes it takes some work to get to the point where you understand the passage and then to move to the point where you've actually applied it to our lives. Now, the sermon tonight should be, Lord willing, a little bit shorter than some of the others. And you'll see why as we dig into this particular passage. Ecclesiastes is a remarkable book. Uh, some of the things that we've read about in ecclesiastes are very very countercultural and counterintuitive. When you read them in the book of ecclesiastes at times your first thought is to say wait a minute wait a minute that can't be right. And if you haven't thought that yet in ecclesiastes just wait for the next couple of weeks because we're coming to passages where you read it on the face of it and you think wow I don't know about that that's that's not what I expected. The preacher, Koheleth to say. There's other things, however, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm not saying that we don't need the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just saying you don't need the book of Ecclesiastes to figure them out. Some of the things in this book are just common sense. Any thinking person can come to some of these conclusions, which is why, over the last several weeks, I have given you many song lyrics by way of illustration There's many people who write songs, they sit down, they think about life, they think about what they struggle with, what they enjoy, and they try to put their thoughts and their emotions down on paper. And a lot of the things that they put down onto paper are things that we see right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So there's this weird tension in the book of things that are very counterintuitive and then things that are very, very obvious. And our passage tonight, I think, is a little bit different than some of what we've talked about. Talked about up to this point in Ecclesiastes. So, some of the stuff that we've covered in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is kind of depressing, right? Like, we've talked about death a lot, and Americans don't like to think about death, and so we've come face-to-face with a lot of that. We'll have to do more of that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight, uh, death is not the imminent death thing in front of us. It's not the very next thing that we're being asked to wrestle with or to deal with, but it is in the background shaping the way that we think about this particular topic. So just on the front end, let me say this one more note. I don't have a lot of song lyrics for you tonight. In fact, I don't think I have any. I do have a lot of quotes for you. And as I prepared the notes in your handout and all that sort of stuff, there was not space to put all these quotes on your handout, so you don't see a lot of them there. But I am going to put them up on the screen, and so you can track along with some of the the ideas and the the themes that we're going to talk about. So let me start with a quote from Sidney Greedness. He has a book called Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. It's an amazing book. He says, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 is unique in Ecclesiastes because it focuses on worship in God's temple. It is an ideal preaching text for countering the contemporary trend of turning the worship of God into folksy entertainment or gaudy spectacle. So there's a unique passage in the book and that the focus here is on worship who we worship, and how we worship. That's the focus. And greedness is making a very important point that we're going to circle back through to multiple times tonight. In evangelical churches today, what usually gets described as, quote, worship is often nothing more than folksy entertainment or gaudy spectacle. And you understand, just to be clear, that those two things, folksy entertainment or gaudy spectacle, that can look like, sound like a choir with robes and an organ, or it can look like a rock and roll concert and sound like a rock and roll concert where they give you earplugs on the way in. Either of those two external forms of genre and music and performance and dress and all the rest can fall under what greediness is calling folksy entertainment or gaudy spectacle. So let's just start with this question just to get our minds moving and thinking. Why do people go to church today? We're talking about people going to worship in the temple in Ecclesiastes 5. Why do people go to church today? What are some of the reasons? Let me just suggest several for your consideration. Some people go to church to worship. They're genuinely there with a heart and a desire to bring honor and glory to God in the things that happen when they are there at church in a worship service. That is certainly true for some people. I pray that that's true for our people. Some people go just because of custom, habit, routine. It's just what they do. They've grown up doing it. It's their default thing. They go walk at the mall on Tuesdays. They go play bunco on Wednesdays. They go to church on Sunday mornings. It's just the routine, and they're just in the rhythm of life, and all of us tend to like routine. So for some people, that's, that's what it boils down to. Some people go because of family. Some of your kids come to church because you make them. Fair? If it was up to them, they'd be at home watching YouTube. Some of my kids would be doing the exact same thing. No, they go watch YouTube tonight. No, you're going to come to church. You're here because you were made to come. Sometimes husbands and wives come because the other spouse wants them to come. And one spouse says, eh, it's really not my thing. I don't really want to go. I don't think it's that important. But it matters to you, and I like you, and I want to make you happy, and I don't want the conflict, so I'll go with you. So sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's magic. Can we just be honest about that? Some people have in their mind, they wouldn't call it magic, but they have a magic idea and the idea in their head is like church, going to church, putting money in the box at church, singing the songs at church, filling in the sermon outline blanks at church, is the equivalent of spiritual, let's make a deal. So, God, I'm here, doing my part, got all the blanks filled in, even guessed half of them correctly before he put the words on the screen. Pretty good sang all the songs, even when Jake messed up the words to that one song, I sang it correctly, right through, put my offering in the box, just like I've always done, check the box, check the box, check the box. And the idea in the back of their head, whether they would be crass enough to admit it or not, the idea in the back of their head is, God, I did my part, now it's your turn to do your part for me. And what I'm saying to you is that is the fundamental premise of magic. If you do a thing, you say the words, you go through the routine, you put the right stuff in the potion, you get the desired outcome. So for some people, it's just magic. Some people, it's entertainment. They're going for entertainment. Some churches try harder at this than others. I'll be honest with you, if you're going to church for entertainment, you can go better places for entertainment. Even the churches that are trying really hard to entertain you, you can still find better places for entertainment. However... Church is free. So, free entertainment. Maybe you're not too picky and you just say, I'm going, I like the band, I like the the talks, I like the whatever. So, entertainment. And some people, certainly it's just for image, right? That would be true all over the world, especially true in Bible Belt type places that I'm just going because it's expected of me culturally. Uh, I have customers that come here, so I want to be there with them. I want them to see me. I want to put in an appearance and sort of be seen and see and all of that sort of stuff. So for many, it's image. Here's the big idea of Ecclesiastes 5 when we think about worship. It's the idea that God's people are called to worship the right God the right way. The people of God are called to worship the one true God, and to worship him how he wants to be worshipped. This is so clear to us when we read the Old Testament. If You're working through a Bible reading plan and if it's a sort of a uh, through the Bible plan. Maybe you've gone through Genesis and you're into Exodus and maybe you're reading about the tabernacle and God says build the tent like this. This many posts, put the thing here. Put the room here, the ark, make the ark like this. The poles, the incense, this is what I want you to make the incense out of. Don't use that to make the incense. Use this to make the incense. This is the day when you're going to come here and do this thing. All the details and all the instructions that for us are so foreign and sometimes hard to read. What God is saying to his people is, I want you to worship me. And I want you to worship me the way I want to be worshipped. Not asking his people to be inventive and how they approach worship. Just do it like I'm telling you to do it. We see that in the Old Testament pretty clearly. Today in the United States most evangelical churches operate on the assumption when it comes to worship that if the Bible does not tell us don't do it then we can do it. Do you have a Bible verse that says I can't shoot a confetti cannon off at the end of every worship service? Is there a verse in Acts that says, I can't do that? Well, then I can do that. I'm not doing anything the Bible says not to do. And that's how churches operate. Can we do this thing in worship? Well, does the Bible tell us not to do it? Well, we could come up with an infinite number of things that the Bible doesn't specifically detail out and say, don't do this in your worship service. The question really is not, does the Bible forbid it? But the question is, what does the Bible call us to in worship? What are we called to do as New Covenant, New Testament believers as part of the church? What are we called to do when we gather together for worship? That mindset existed in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And I'm telling you, it needs to continue to exist in the New Covenant, the New Testament church. We're not following the old covenant rules and regulations, but the question is more than can you give me a verse that says don't. The question is what does the Bible call us to do? And we ought to approach worship with that mindset and that attitude. So let's read these verses. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, and then let's try to make sense of what the preacher is saying to us. Ecclesiastes 5, 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry At your voice and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Father, tonight as your people, we humbly ask that you would give us ears to hear what the preacher is saying to us about worship, and we pray that these instructions ancient as they are, would translate into our lives and into our church in a way that would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to note that when we left off, we looked at a few verses a couple of weeks ago in Ecclesiastes 4, and then we skipped the verses that we just read, and we read a few verses from Ecclesiastes 5, and we mashed those verses up together. That was not me trying to avoid this passage, that was me saying that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has woven these texts together to teach us something important. So what I'm saying to you is that 5.1 to 7 belongs in between 4.1 to 16 and 5.8 to 12. It belongs in the place that it's at. It's not an accidental interruption into the flow of thought. Ecclesiastes 4, and then the back side of 5 deal with the worship of money. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. If you missed, you can go back and catch up. But we talked about the worship of money. We didn't exactly frame it that way. Instead, we talked about greed and oppression and envy. All of those things amount to the worship of money. So what the author has done, what the preacher has done, and he's taken this instruction about don't worship money... And he split it into two pieces, and he basically says the same thing on either side of our text tonight. And right in the middle, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 deals with the worship, with the worship of the one true God. So on the outsides of this section, he's saying, don't worship money. And on the inside, he's saying to us, you should worship God. And here's how you should worship God. You should worship the true God, and you should worship Him the way that He wants to be worshipped. So here's a quote from Derek Kidner. He says, Koheleth, that's Hebrew for the preacher, Koheleth turns his observant eye on man as worshipper. This writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets round what he has volunteered to do for God. He's going to the temple. He's not pouting about it. He's not grouchy about it. He's not throwing a temper tantrum about it. He's not outwardly protesting that he'd rather be home watching YouTube. He's going. He likes a good sing. Sermon's okay if you keep me entertained and tell enough jokes, but he's only partially connected. His heart's not all the way in it. And when he goes, he says these things to God that he never really makes good on. That's the kind of worshiper that's being addressed in Ecclesiastes 5. So let's take a moment just to think about worship. A lot of times on a Sunday morning, we talk about worship or a Wednesday night, and we say something like, as a church, worship is anything you do, anything you say, anything you think, or anything you feel that honors and glorifies God. That's the broadest possible definition of worship. Anything you do, say, think, feel that honors the Lord. And when we talk about worship with that broad definition, what we're trying to do is drill into your head that worship is more than what happens in this room. We come in this room and we worship. But when you leave this room, you are still a worshiping person. It's unavoidable. The things that you do, say, think, and feel, they will either honor the Lord or they won't. And when they honor the Lord, that's worship. So that's the broadest possible definition of worship. We also need to have in our minds a more specific, a more narrow definition of worship. And that is what we would talk about when we come into this room as a church family what we do on a Wednesday night in this room or on that end of the building or on the second floor of this building, what we do on a Sunday morning when we have big church in here, we have Bible study in the other rooms. There is also a sense in which worship is a very specific thing, a very intentional thing that we do as the people of God when we gather together. We gather together to worship. And in that sense, in that narrow definition, it's not just anything and everything that we do, but it's what happens when the people of God gather together. And in Ecclesiastes 5, that narrow definition of worship is what we're dealing with. Not just the broadest possible, anything you do when you're out playing golf, when you're walking at the mall, when you're picking up your kids in the school line, whatever, but what happens when the people of God meet together and gather for worship. That's the focus here. So there's two paragraphs. And there's basically two sort of sections to this passage, and we'll just take them each in turn. The preacher urges those who worship to proceed with caution. Proceed with caution. I don't think most evangelical churches encourage people who come to church to proceed with caution. Maybe we don't even do a great job of that. But what the preacher is saying is that when you gather together for worship as the people of God corporately, the congregation, you should proceed with caution. Notice what he says in verse 1. In the ESV he says, guard your steps. Literally what it says is, watch your feet. Watch your feet. And you understand that that does not mean you come to that threshold in the back of the room and you look down. That's not what we're saying. not saying physically look down at your feet. This is an idiom. It's basically a way of saying you better watch yourself when you come to do this. You better not be flippant when you come to do this. You better come to this task of worship with an understanding of what it is you're coming to do. You're not just here for all of those reasons we listed out earlier, but you're here for the purpose of worship. Proceed with caution. When he talks about the house of God, you understand we're in the Old Testament, so he's talking about the temple. Going to the temple for worship. And there's talk about sacrifice here. So there were sacrifices that would happen at the temple. We live, not in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant. So what he's saying is when you go to church... When you gather together with your church family, when you go to big church, when you come on Wednesday nights, guard your steps, watch your feet. Don't just rush in flippantly to what's about to happen, but understand the gravity of what's taking place in worship. So he says several things in this first paragraph uh, as we break it down. He says, worship requires listening, listening if you went to restaurants in Odessa, Texas Sunday afternoon at 12.30 and you found people who had just gone to church and you asked them, tell me about the worship at your church this morning. I think 10 out of 10 would immediately start talking about music. Maybe Somebody, depending on what church they went to, would talk about prayer. I think very few would immediately, if you just said, Tell me about worship at your church this morning, I think very few of them would have anything to say about what they listened to. That's really not an American idea when it comes to church. We're there to do something, we're there to sing, we're there to participate, we're there to pray prayers, we're there to fill in sermon outlines. But what the preacher is saying is, you really ought to come with the idea of listening. Verse one, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. In the Hebrew mindset, when you call somebody to listen, it's kind of like when you tell your kids to listen. When you say to your kids, listen up, you mean more than unplug your ears. And let these sound waves reverberate off your eardrums. What do you really mean when you tell your kids to listen? Pay attention to this. And do what I'm about to tell you. That's what you mean. We have a new dog in our house. He doesn't listen. I'm not convinced he can even hear the sound waves coming out of my mouth. At all, period. But even if the sound waves are making it, he's not doing What he's being told to do. In the biblical sense, he's not listening. You're not listening. To draw near and to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Deuteronomy 6, one of the central passages to the identity of the Hebrew people. We talk about the Lord your God, the Lord being one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. All that good stuff from Deuteronomy 6. The very first word in that famous passage is hear. Hear, Israel, quit talking and listen. Listen, to draw near and to listen, to hear is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Here's a couple of quotes for you. I think this one came from your mother and I don't mean that as a mama joke. I just mean I don't have a scholarly reference for you. There's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. Sounds like something your mom would say, right? You got one mouth, you got two ears, you should listen twice as much as you talk. Zip it. Listen. David Gibson, the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen When you gather in this room on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, you understand that there is a reason why the very first thing that we normally do is read from the Bible. Good morning. We're glad you're here. We're going to read from the Bible. Maybe a couple of paragraphs, maybe a single verse. But we're going to draw near as the people of God, and literally the first thing that we're going to do together is listen. This is what God has said. So before we rush in and start singing and praying and talking and all the rest, we're just going to stop. It may take 10 seconds. It may take 30 seconds. It may take three minutes. We're going to stop and we're going to listen. Next, the fool doesn't know that his worship is actually sin. That's what the preacher says. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know that they are doing evil. They don't know that what they're doing in their supposed worship is actually evil. That should haunt you just a little bit as a, a person who claims to come to a place like this to worship God. The idea that it's possible that a person could come to a church building and a church service... They could come to the temple and they could go through external routine, ritual, religious stuff. And that what they're doing is actually not honoring God at all. It's actually evil. And you could be doing it without even knowing it. That's the fool. David Gibson, when verse 1 says that fools do not know that they are doing evil, it's referring to the kind of people who have become so used to playing games with God They no longer expect religion to be anything else. The sham is normal. The sham is normal. I would encourage you when you come into a room like this on a night like tonight or you come into a room like this on a Sunday morning, you come to corporate worship. Do not think about what we're doing in this room as a spiritual megaphone where we are turning our heads up to the heavens and we are shouting to God and we're singing and we're praying so that God could hear us. Instead, I would encourage you to think about what happens in this room more like a spiritual stethoscope. Where God has the two ends in His ear and the other end on your heart. You understand this is an illustration. doesn't need a stethoscope, but where God is discerning the intention of your heart not the volume of your singing. Worship is less like a megaphone where we're communicating to God. It is actually more like a stethoscope where God is diagnosing the condition of our hearts. The fool does not know that his worship is actually sin. Next, the transcendence of God should make us slow to speak in worship. Transcendence is a big long theological word that just means that God is holy and He's different and He's set apart and He's above us and He's beyond us and He's not like us. God is not just your buddy, not just your pal, not just some old man up in the sky, but He is transcendent in His holiness. And His transcendence should make us slow to speak. Verse 2, chapter 5, Be not rash with your mouth, Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? It's because God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In Oklahoma, I pastored First Baptist Church in Kingfisher. One of the very first men that I met at that church, one of my my dear friends at that church, was a retired Oklahoma highway patrolman named Claude Bolenbach. And he was a funny guy. And almost the very first time I met with the pastor search team, somebody was praying. A member of the pastor search team there was praying for our meeting or after our meeting or something. And they went a little bit too long. You know, sometimes people do that. Praying before dinner, you're like, the food's going to get cold. I don't know what you're doing. What, and what, what is happening? And when somebody would do that, Claude Bolenbach, when he would wait. He wouldn't be rude. He wouldn't be disrespectful. When somebody said amen and they were done, he would look at them and say, are you trying to catch up? Have you not prayed all week long? What are you doing? And I heard him say it in pastor search committee meetings. I heard him say it in deacon meetings. I heard him say it at the end of church. So-and-so, brother so-and-so, would you close us in prayer? So-and-so prays. Claude turns around. Have you not prayed in the last month? What are you doing? You had a lot to say. The transcendence of God should make us slow to speak in worship. Gibson says fools gush out their own words instead of listening for God's words. Go back and look at Genesis 18. It's a conversation between the Lord and Abraham. And the text says, it's not the only place you'll find this in the Bible, but the text says that when the Lord was done talking to Abraham, the Lord went on his way. That's different than what we tend to think, right? We think that it should say when Abraham was done talking and Abraham had got everything off his chest and Abraham was done, then the Lord left. But that's just not what the text in Genesis says. And I'm not trying to suggest to you that if you pray longer than five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, that God's up there in heaven like, oh my goodness, give it a rest. That's not what I'm suggesting to you. I'm just saying to you, in Genesis 18 it says, God showed up, he talked to Abraham, when he said what he wanted to say to Abraham, he left. That's what it says. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, the Gentiles think that they will be heard because of their many words and their prayers. Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't think that God is only hearing you because you're using the big, long, fancy words or because you're using a whole bunch of words to make us slow to speak. Greedness. The teacher wants us to remember the tremendous distance between God and us. God's in heaven. We're on earth. God is far above us, far superior to us. God is the almighty creator, king. We are mere earthlings. We show our reverence for God when we are not quick To speak. One last idea. When our head is filled with our own dreams, plans, and ideas, we cannot worship. I think that's the point at the end of verse, uh, the first paragraph in verse three, where the preacher says, A dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I think he's using dream here like we would say uh, so and so is graduating high school or graduating college and they have big dreams, they have big plans. The big things that they want to accomplish. And in the context of worship, what the preacher is saying to us, if you come before God with all of your plans and dreams and ideas and suggestions, your focus is on you, not God. And if you come simply asking God to bless what you've already decided to do, you might miss it. And so the preacher just simply says, a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Next paragraph, he starts to talk about vows. The preacher urges those who make vows to keep their vows. If you make a vow to God, you should keep that vow to God. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Pay what you vow. Maybe you just turn back one page and let's remind us the driving force of this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 3 is the driving question for the whole book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Gain. How can you come out ahead? Toil, all the things you do in life your work, your school, your hobbies, your family, your friends, your YouTube, all of it. That's your toil. What can you gain from all your toil under the sun? Under the sun is less about a place and it's more about a time. You show up here and you're on the clock. Your days are numbered. And your life is like smoke, it's a mist. It's a vapor. Whether you live 4 years, 40 years, 80 years, 98 years. Someone texted me just before church said their mother had passed away. She was 98 years old. 98 years, that's a long time. You know what that is in the scope of eternity? (sighs) That's it. What does man gain from all his toil? Under the sun. The answer is in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Vanity of vanity says the preacher. Vanity of vanities all is vanity. Hebel, hebel says the preacher. Hebel of hebel all is hebel. Smoke, mist, vapor, breath. That's it. Doesn't mean it's worthless. and It doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just means that your time under the sun is that long. And the question in the book is, you have that long, how can you come out ahead in the end? Part of the wisdom of chapter 5 is, you should not talk too much. You don't have a lot of time here. You shouldn't talk so much. You should listen more to other people and to God, especially to God. And then down in this next paragraph, the answer becomes, if you tell God that you're going to do something, you better do it. You make a vow to God, you better keep that vow. You better be serious about it. Moses said the same thing in Deuteronomy 23. I'll let you look that up. Notice what he says in verse 5 and 6. God is angry with fools who do not keep their vows. If that sounds grouchy to you, I'm sorry. That's just what the text says. God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Next, we should not try to back out of our vows or make excuses. And I think this is what the preacher is driving at in verse 6, where he says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. He's talking about vows, and he's talking about somebody who gets called to the carpet about their vow and then says, Oh, that vow was a mistake. I didn't didn't mean that, I'm sorry. And the preacher's just warning you about that. If you make a commitment, especially to God, you ought to keep that commitment. If you make a vow to God, you ought to keep that vow. Jesus had a lot to say. I gave you a few verses. I'll let you look these up. Matthew 5 and 23. Jesus told people, you know what? You should just say yes and no. You should stop swearing on your mama's grave. You should stop swearing by the temple. You should stop making all these heavy, serious vows. You should just say yes or no. And when you say yes, it should be yes. And when you say, when you say no, it should be no. Unless you think this is an Old Testament grouchy kind of thing, there was a couple in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 named Ananias and Sapphira who made a vow in church to God about a gift that they were going to give, and then they came back and said, Wow, well, it was kind of a mistake, but they didn't even say that out loud. They just thought they'd cover the whole thing up. ebble Smoke. God struck them down. Now, I want to give you one word of caution here. I'm preaching Ecclesiastes 5, and the emphasis on Ecclesiastes 5 is when you make a vow, you should keep that vow. When you tell God you're going to do something, you should do that thing. And if you're not going to do it, you shouldn't tell him that you're going to do it in the first place. That's Ecclesiastes 5. It's not the only place in the Bible that we would learn about vows. And I would just direct your attention to the book of Judges, to a man named Jephthah, who made a stupid, foolish vow that came full circle in his life and centered on his daughter in a way that he did not see coming. And guess what he did? He kept his vow. And he should not have kept his vow. The book of Judges is a train wreck. It's not an example for much of anything. And what Jephthah should have done is said, I'm a fool. And I shouldn't have said that in the first place. And I repent in dust and ashes. And he should not have carried out his vow. So, Judges, what I'm telling you is, sometimes you just need to admit your vow was stupid. Ecclesiastes, I'm telling you, keep your vow. And you're here tonight saying, how do I know which one? And I'm telling you it takes wisdom to know. It takes wisdom to know. Maybe it takes a counsel of friends. Maybe it takes not talking to God so much, but listening to God in the scriptures to discern the difference. Don't try to back out of your vows. Next, when our head is filled with our own dreams, plans, and ideas, the result is Hebel. When dreams increase and words grow many, verse 7, there's vanity. There's vanity. That's our word, vanity, Hebel. Alright, let's try to apply this. How do we conclude? How do we apply? How do we think through this? Number one, God expects His people to worship rightly. He expects His people to worship and he expects them to worship rightly. The right God in the right way. I love this quote from Zach Eswine. He has a book about Ecclesiastes. And he says, the preacher uses the word when. He's looking back up in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house. When you go to the house of God, he says. If means maybe. When designates something certain. There's just the assumption that you're going to gather together with the people of God in worship. Jesus has the exact same assumption in the Sermon on the Mount. Not, if you want to pray, do it like this, when you pray. Not, if you feel like giving, this is how you should do it, when you give. Not, if you want to take a fast and focus on God, here's some insight, when you do this thing. When you worship, not if you worship. Not just anything you do say, think, feel, that's the broad version, but we're talking about the narrow version. Gathering together with the people of God. Is church participation, attendance, membership optional? No. And people immediately, when you say no, they say, well, you think you have to go to church to be a Christian. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. But that doesn't mean it's optional. It's expected. Jesus expected his people to do it. The preacher expected the people of God to gather together for worship. Now, one little side question. We'll chase one rabbit tonight. There's people at church that you don't like. Don't act like that's not true. There's people at church that drive you crazy. And there's all kinds of people that say, I don't want to go to church because it's a bunch of hypocrites and... Bunch of fun. I know why people are going to church. They're going to be seen, They're going to be heard, They're going because they think it's magic. They're going for all, those, all that stuff you put up on the first slide, all that list of stuff, except the worship. They're going for all those reasons. Why would I want to go be a part of that? Just a helpful quote from S.Y. He says, We must guard our steps because fools run amok in church. As we seek community, most of us come to the painful awareness that fools and folly exist in every gathering under the sun. All he's saying is if that's your excuse for not coming to church, where are you going to go? Bowling league? Bunko? Rotary club? PTA? Work? They're everywhere. The fact that there's fools in the church and people coming for the wrong reason, it should not surprise you, nor should it stop you from doing what's expected of you. Secondly, we ought to be wise, not foolish, when it comes to worship. I'm just asking you at this point to have the mental category that there is a way to approach worship that is foolish. Americans tend to think, If your heart's in the right place, it's all good. If you have good intentions, well, whatever, it's it's going to be okay. God knows your heart. That's not encouraging news. That's actually bad news, that God knows your heart. And it's possible to be foolish in your worship. And as a people of God, we should want to not be foolish in our worship. Thirdly, we're called to fear God in our worship. This is the very end of the passage. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. We saw the same thing in chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. If You go to the very end of the book. That's how the book ends. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. It's just a drumbeat all the way through Ecclesiastes called to fear God. It's a drumbeat through the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not fear as in terror, like we think God might be malevolent in his character and he might just be out to get us. It's not that kind of fear, like you would fear a serial killer. It's not fear like that. But it's also not just fear where you say, Hey, you're the boss. Good to see you. Good morning at church today. Thanks, God. Good stuff. We're not chummy with God. We have a reverence and a fear when we gather to worship as the people of God. Not terror, like we don't know His character. Not chumminess, just respect like you respect any human authority, but a holy reverence and a holy fear. How do we maintain that? just practically as a church how do we maintain that idea I think the answer is you have to be gospel centered as a church you have to constantly remind yourself who God is that's one of the things this passage does don't forget he's in heaven you're on earth he's the creator you're the creature he's holy you're not he's majestic you're very finite he's all powerful you're very weak he's all knowing you don't know much neither do I Remember who He is. Secondly, remember not only that we're creatures, but that we are sinners. Be honest with the fact that we are sinful people to our core. that affects every aspect of our lives. Thirdly, understand the good news that God sent His Son to live for us and to die for us and to bring us back into a right relationship with Him so that we can worship Him. God saved His people in the Exodus so that they could worship. He saved His people Through the greater Moses, Jesus, so that we could be people who worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Number four, as believers we should be serious about keeping our vows to God. Some of you are thinking, man it's been a long time since I made a vow to God. I think I was in eighth grade and I had an algebra test and I wasn't very good, and I promised God, God, if you get me a 70 on this test, I will read my Bible every day. And you're thinking, I haven't done that in a long time. What about marriage vows? Vows made before your friends and your family, before God? What about the vow of repentance and faith? Knowing who God is, knowing who we are, knowing what Jesus has done, we repent and we believe. We make that commitment to follow the Lord. What about the, the vow of doing something for God, serving in the church? Being part of the body, like we're talking about on Sunday mornings. Every member is essential. What about the vow you made when you joined this church and you signed a membership covenant? And we laid out, here's what, here's what we expect of members, and here's what you can expect of our church. Here's what we expect of members. And you signed that, and you said... Yes, and we asked you, I asked you, if it's been in the last nine years, I personally looked you in the eye and said, we're asking you to take this serious, you're making a commitment. What about when we sing? You ever thought about that as a vow to God? How many of the songs that we sing say, God, we're going to do this, we're going we're to trust you, we're going to believe you, we're going to follow you, like you're singing it. Are you just mindlessly making a vow? As believers, we should be serious about keeping our vows. Number five, just a word of hope. If you don't know what to say in prayer, you ought to cling to the promise that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interceding on our behalf. And we read Romans 8 at the beginning of our time. We listened as we started tonight, reading the Word of God in Romans 8. And Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. And then he says it just a few verses later in verse 34, that Jesus himself is interceding for his people, praying for his people. Sometimes we don't know what to pray because of spiritual immaturity. And we just say, I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. That's okay. The triune God is praying for you, with you. And sometimes we don't know what to pray Romans 8 because we're in the midst of suffering in a broken, fallen, painful, wicked, just mess of a world. And we just groan and we say, God, I don't even know what to say at this point. And that's okay. Because God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are talking to God the Father on your behalf. So maybe it would be okay to let yourself off the hook and say, I don't have to have a lot of words to say. Maybe I just need to listen. So number six. In worship and in life, listening is better than talking or singing. Listening is better. Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. James says in James 1.19, you should be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. So, we'll end By listening. Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's Better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. and Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Father, as your people, we just stopped tonight, and we're grateful that you have spoken to us, and that in our context, we can hear from you anytime we want to hear from you. We open the scriptures, and we hear your voice. We hear your inspired, spirit-inspired word speaking to us. What a privilege to hear from you, and what a privilege to talk to you, and Lord, we simply pray. That when we gather together for worship, we would gather with hearts that are fearful and a holy reverence before you. That we would not come with lots to say, that we would not come to be entertained or to have our ears tickled, but that we would come to worship and to acknowledge your glory and your greatness. Lord, give us wisdom as we think about uh, these verses in this passage. Uh, make us people who worship. Uh, not according to our own desires, not according to our culture or world, but uh, make us a people, a church, whose worship lines up with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.